As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains accounts of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Isn't it good to be alive on a day like today? Have a seat there. Breathe that air, you feel it all over your skin. It's good, and it? It's sort of feeling you want to give somebody a big hug like that or one of those little pats makes you feel good. And it's that sort of touching I want to talk about today because it helps you to understand the sort of touching that doesn't make you feel too good. Can I ask you something? Natasha, who owns your body? It's my body. Absolutely. But sometimes people do things to one another which don't make them feel good. 
If the man keeps bothering me, I can tell him to go away. That's right. And you don't have to worry about hurting his feelings, even if he is being kind, all right? Just because he's a grown-up does not mean that you have to do what he says. You could say, go away, please. Say it. Try saying go away very firmly. Go away! That's good. Now, see if you can get everybody up and down the street to turn around and see what's going on. Make it that loud. Go away! No, make people right up there hear it, okay? Yes, that really is Rolf Harris, presenting a video called Kids Can Say No. In the video, he tells a group of children that no adult has the right to touch them in a way that makes them feel uncomfortable. And then he goes on to arm them with strategies to make predatory adults go away. The video was actually Rolf's idea. He saw a theatre troupe in Canada performing a children's show with the same theme. And when he returned to London, he contacted a production company he'd worked with and also an organisation called the NSPCC, or the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, who were only too glad to get on board. The result was a 20-minute video released in 1985 that was shown widely in primary schools around the UK. But by 1985, Rolf Harris had already committed most of the 12 offences for which he was jailed in 2014 as a convicted paedophile. At the time that he was confidently pitching his video idea to a children's charity and then sat with children filming it, he was still occasionally raping his daughter's best friend. The word most commonly used to describe Harris at the conclusion of his trial and his spectacular fall from grace was remorseless. He still seemed utterly shameless as revelation after revelation rolled out in front of the world and his real character was exposed. We all got an inkling of the sheer entitlement felt by the man and of his expectation that he should be allowed to go on separating his private and public personas with the complete complicity of everyone around him because he was just so famous. Our guest today got more than an inkling, unfortunately. For decades, she was one of the many, many women who knew and who thought he'd get away with it forever. But then miraculously, a group of those women from all over the world who didn't know each other, decided to stand together. Susie Dent is a makeup artist. Makeup artists are the heart and soul of any film or television production. They're the ones who hear the secrets, the sniggers and the moans, they see the tears and the eye rolls, and they're always ready with a reassuring pat on the arm. They're the first in and the last to leave and the only ones never to complain. They're very special, and you'll understand what I mean by that as you get to know Susie. And you'll also understand why it's so offensive that she was treated this way in her workplace. I grew up watching him in black and white TV with his wobble board and singing songs. In Australia, we used to, you know, call him that he looked like a garden gnome, which, you know, is pretty much because he had the beard and the glasses, which, it, which also is harmless. The garden gnome is harmless, you know. He was very, very big. He was a very big star back then. He was the biggest star that walked through Channel 7 Studios. It was 1986. I'd been um, a makeup artist uh, for three years. Back in 1986, as a makeup artist, um, I was very excited because I knew I'd been booked to work with him. 
uh, he had come in, he was doing, we were doing a promotion, kind of like a commercial for something that he was going to do. So filming that. Um, so when I first, very first met him, I brought him into my makeup room, which were kind of small makeup rooms back then. And they had big chairs, like the old barber chairs, like, you know, the big headpiece and they had big arms um, that you could slip your arms underneath. So I stood next to him whilst his brother was standing at the door whilst I go up and touch his skin. And while I was doing because you've got to feel someone's skin to, so you can choose, you know, the relevant stuff that you're going to put on it, you know, the right foundation and things. So, yeah, he slipped his hand um, down the um, arm of the chair, his right arm, and um, ran it up um, the, my, my leg, my left leg, because I was um, standing facing him. I had baggy shorts on back then. Back then the uniform was pretty much denim shorts, white Hanes T-shirt, black Doc Martens and white socks, and that's my, that was my uniform. Um, I always dressed as a tomboy. I kind of started doing that at 19 because of another workplace sexual assault incident So um, because that's what happened back then. Um, unfortunately to women so yeah he did that um, I took him into the studio what did you think was happening initially did you think oh he's accidentally touching me he doesn't realize I mean do you remember your initial thoughts I do actually I was really surprised I was really disappointed I looked into his eyes and you can see people when you're standing right next to them my job I, I invade your aura I touch you you know I touch your face I invade your space um, and he knew exactly what he was doing. Um, you know, he had a very lascivious look. He was looking at me in a really lusty way. He was older than my dad, old enough to be my grandfather. He was 64 or something at the time. And I turned away from him and I looked in the mirror and the first thing that crossed my mind was I can't believe you work with children. I, thought, I can't believe it, you know. I just, and I've always, I've always looked younger than I am and maybe you know, and he, because I was only like 23 or 24 at the time and I really didn't look very old. Rolf did stuff to women, as I've since discovered, on the sly and it's kind of like hidden in plain sight. I even have a girlfriend who was molested by him as well, you know, in England working on another show, you know, so, and he wasn't even, she wasn't even working with him and he was just having to be backstage and walk past her and grab her tits both times, you know, because she was there doing makeup for someone else. I mean, you know, so he's got, he's got a thing for a certain type of vulnerability and back then and so and now um the role of the crew one of the the what is it you don't upset the talent I mean how long were you working on him it's not like you know when you do a woman you you know it takes a long time for full face but when you're doing a man it's not as long but it's it's a while you're standing there and you have to stand so close to him would have been um, at least 15 minutes and his brother had left as well by that stage. And then I took him into the studio with me where the crew were waiting and then, um, uh, yeah, took him in there and that's where I stay because my job is to look after the talent. Uh, that's not just, you don't just do the makeup and look after them. If they need water, you get them water, you know. That's, that's old school training. Back then um, it was video. We didn't have quiet air conditioning like we have now because it hadn't been invented. We had really bright lights that were very hot. So the aircon came off, the hot lights were on and it didn't take long before the temperature inside the studios just went through the roof. You'd be always spending at work, you know. So you have to keep stepping in and patting him down? And blotting down because you can see it when people sweat on camera. So um, each time I would do that, he would um, always touch me. He'd grab me, he'd put his, he'd run his hands up my leg. Back then we had, um, in the 80s, we had these big belts, um, big thick belts with, you know, all sorts of stuff on them. They're really cool. And you kind of wear them on your hips and you always have the front bit would just kind of hang down the end of the belt and he would grab my belt 
and pull me towards him to try and crotch grant me. He did oh, that twice. Oh, my God. I had a rip in my shorts before they became, you know, rudely ripped like they are now. It was, it was a very modest rip, you know, and he'd keep trying to shove his, when I was standing there, shove his hand in the rip and I'd grab his wrist with my other hand when it didn't have the powder puffy thing in it. Go, don't do that. Don't do that because, you, you know, you had to kind of, you know, you, you couldn't, say, couldn't say F off or don't do that. He could have walked. I could have pissed him off. I could have. I felt that my job was on the line and everybody in the studio with me. The sad thing was the director and him were the same vintage and they stood there, the director stood there and talked about me like I was a piece of meat. Um, what my legs, I have really good legs. I'm really lucky. Um, but they're still really good now and they're pretty hot when I was younger. And men just, you know, men and the leg thing, you know. That was my boss. So the director on set is my boss. I hadn't worked with him before and I never worked with him again. I can't tell you what his name was. Mm. Um, but that's how he behaved. Oh my God. And he was of the same age because <sighs> women, didn't, we didn't have the right to stand up, even if it wasn't uh, a situation that might have affected the job, the shoot, anybody else. Women did not speak up back then. We weren't encouraged to do that. We didn't have the rights to do that. It wasn't like it doesn't really matter how uncomfortable you, I felt where there was men around me watching it all happen and watching him grope me, you know. I don't know that a young w- woman even today would feel comfortable speaking up in that moment. Like but she might think, okay, as soon as I get out of here I'm going to, but that's just such an intimidating environment where no no one is standing up for you. Like everyone is either participating or saying nothing. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. It was. It was bad. Um, and because Rolf Harris was such a huge star, we're talking power, money, position. All he'd have to do is go to the director, I don't want to work with Susie yeah. anymore, you're off, you're done. Yeah. And that would have been the end of my career mm. that I'd worked so hard for. Yeah. What I found is um, in the last couple of years these guys have been reported for their behaviour towards women they work with by other people, like other younger people who've overheard it. It's really interesting. So the women who they work with are so used to it, so whatever, but younger women will overhear it and they'll go and report it. Hearing that story, that makes me cheer because it's all about women of my generation and because I'm 60, so I'm a slightly older, and your generation standing up and speaking out about things. So the younger generation go, oi, when we cop it and, uh, and they feel uncomfortable, we're, we're educating the next generation so that things are different for women. Because we are programmed to cop some a certain amount of behaviour, you know. Uh, but, yeah, so women, they're, they're no choice. You didn't have the choice. You, you just suck it up, sweetheart. Grin and bear it is another one. Uh, and you did. You grinned and bared it. Uh, I then I moved to the back of the studio because I thought, you know, that's maybe won't want me so much. Nah, he'd call for me. Uh, then um, I started to get really jacked of it, so I got, went outside the studio and there was um, uh, one of the guys was younger. He was my age and he knew that I wasn't having a good time um, and then I was, you know, I was starting to get really pissed off at being touched, you know. I don't really like people invading my space anyway, especially not dirty old men, you know. I would have cried, I think. I think I would have cried. It would have been such a shock. Yeah, it was, It was. well, by this, it went on for hours, you know, so we're talking like a six-hour shoot. And at the very end of the day when the shoot finished, um, in the corridor of Channel 7 there, there was a broom cupboard, quite a big one, and, and if you walked up to there, there was my, my, my makeup room that had all my makeup in and my kit. And because the makeup was so thick back then, you'd always take the makeup off, you know, you'd, especially men, because we're talking like, you know, it's really obvious that you've got it on. But there was no way that I was going to go in that room with him and I was going to be alone with him. So I walked into the 
cupboard where the brooms were and I hid, I hid in there. I stood in there um, because I just didn't feel safe. I knew that I'd be sexually assaulted full on if I went in the room with him. That was, I knew that without a shadow of a doubt. I was not going to, I'm not an idiot. So I was like really grateful that that cupboard was there and I, and I had like the door open a little bit so I, could, I watched up the corridor and he was standing waiting for me and I was like, yeah, go for it, mate. Uh, and then the powers that be, I'll call them that, the Channel 7 heads came downstairs um, and, you know, kind of escorted him back up the corridor and out the door and all that sort of stuff. And I waited in the cupboard just to make sure they were all gone until they came back in and he didn't come back in. Then I went back into my makeup room and packed up my kit and I went back into um, Studio C Makeup, it was called, where the head makeup person, the woman actually, um, that was like her, that's the main part of the studio, you know. And I said to her, I just had the worst day with a dirty old man. And she said to me, oh, I thought you knew. I said, knew what? And she said, oh, his name's, his nickname is The Octopus. But he does that to makeup artists every time. And I was just, I was really pissed off that I wasn't, and this woman knew me, um, that I wasn't given a heads up. You know, I've been doing this for a long time now. I like getting a heads up. Um, if I've got anybody that's coming in that has a particular personality thing, for me to survive and be and thrive in an industry for 38 years, uh, you have to be really good at psychology and I'm really good at it, you know, I'm good at making people feel good. And if you give me a bit of a heads up, like this one really likes heroin, it's like, great, you know, I know where that's going to go. Or this one's late or this one's feeling, this one's person's just died or whatever. I know where to go. I know how to grab you, hold you and support you so you can perform. But when, you, when you, you're not given that and you don't know to look out, when someone's going to assault you and touch you and grab you, it's kind of like you can't do anything. And the funny thing is, you know, I went into that makeup room when I, when I complained to her, she said to me, oh, by the way, the powers that be that I told you about, the men upstairs, they, and they had sent down a message to her to give to me to congratulate me on the way that I had conducted myself with him. And I stood there and I thought, you were all watching. And I realised that split second I said, I thought, I haven't complained yet. I'm supposed to complain, then you're supposed to tell me, not the other way around. And I realised they're all upstairs in the control room, right? We're in the edit suite, all watching. So there was more, there was like six, seven, eight, maybe ten men up there, because it was Rolf Harris, watching him molest me all day. So nobody did a damn thing, you know? And I stood there in the makeup room and I was gobsmacked. And I walked out of there and when I got home, I called my parents. How was your day? Oh, I was crap. How was it? How was Rolf? He's a dirty old man. I never kept it a secret my entire career. Every time anybody said to me, "Who's?" Because I'd always get, "Who's the best person?" and "The worst person." Best always changes depending on you know who I've met and done. You know, the worst person was always him. I knew I would never work with him again. No way, and uh, not on your life. That's made me physically sick. It's so horrible. It's so intense hearing this because, you know, on the surface you hear things like people go, oh, well, you know, it was just a touch oh. Oh, on the leg. But I know what it feels like when you get touched and you don't expect it. It's jarring. But also hearing you say you hid in a broom cupboard. Yeah. Like I feel like there's so much complicity in all this and it's so it just shows how it all just was let to happen. Absolutely, I just, for years and years and years. was and it was Channel 7 and Channel 7 also. Uh, had the show Hey Dad. Absolutely. Ooh. That photograph from the hey da- of the Hey Dad cast where he has his hand down that child's pants and the look on her face and the look on his face is just sickening. Similarly, it's like he's, he's, he's daring you. 
So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to? I'm allowed to do this. I get away with this. Um, yeah, I'm worth money. Yeah, because of the circumstances. My show, people love me. I'm a star. I can do what I want. There's lots of commercials happening when because uh, that was commercials and that was revenue. Really popular. They would have made a fortune and he got away with what he got away with because there's money involved, you know. You testified, didn't you, in, in Rolf Harris's trial? I did. I did. In um, 2014, actually it was 2013, and I was paying attention to the Hey Dad trial. And my mother actually came forward and said to me, hey, did you know that they're, you know, they're looking into Rolf Harris? And I thought, oh, yeah, I'll believe that when I see it. Yeah. So I'm watching a current affair or something like that back then, and there was this woman being interviewed and she'd come forward and she had been a 15-year-old entertainer, like a dancer back then um, uh, in a dance troupe that worked with Rolf Harris and he sexually assaulted her. Um, we're talking penetration, you know. Um, of a child um, and how it affected her life. And back then, um, women were not believed. We were not listened to. We lived in a culture of disbelief, which we still do now, but it's changed quite a lot since the hashtag MeToo went viral and millions of women around the world went, yeah, and we stood up and we put that hashtag on in solidarity with everybody, all of us around the world, and scared the shit out of men. And, we, and we've changed. Things have changed. You're right. It's good to remember that, though, isn't it? Because particularly with famous men, there really was an attitude that was, oh, yeah, what are they trying to get out of them? What are these women, totally. what do they want? Are they they want money. They want their money. They're trying to get something out of these famous they men. They must be lying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But um, I, I was watching this woman um, back in the back then when she came forward, like I said, the culture of disbelief was happening. She was being crucified by the press. There's no way Ralph Harris could have done this. She's lying. She's doing it for money. Let's try and catch her out on her memories. It really shit me. I watched the show and I thought, I know that you're not lying. This is bullshit. I'd watched what was happening to her in the press um, and I thought, right. I started doing some Googling um, and looking for Operation U-Tree and uh, it took me three emails uh, and a week and I found them and, and, and I, uh, in my email I did, uh, you know, a little bit of a this is what happened. I mentioned the word the octopus. That was a pretty key word and they came back to me pretty quickly after that and that, then I. Why was that? Why was that? Had they heard that? Yes. Ah. Yes. Uh, so the thing is, is to when you've got someone really, really famous and you have a society that believes that women are just doing it for the money, you've got to have some key phrases, don't you? Yeah. And I work in an industry that, you know, um, there's, there, there weren't that many makeup artists. So that went through the industry. Boom. If that was, so I voiced it and others had voiced it before, but not necessarily just in Australia. There were women all around the world coming forward in England, Ireland, uh, all around the United Kingdom, Malta, New Zealand, women were coming forward, which was great. But they had to, um, you know, you've got to check their stories. Uh, when I came forward, I, I was given, um, I was spoken to by the, the guy who ran the whole investigation. I look back on it now, it's kind of exciting because Operation Nutri um, is part of history now as um, being like the first biggest case to take down these men of power and position in the entertainment industry. Uh, and to listen to victims of historical sexual crime and believe, uh, and that's where it's changed society, which is just so amazing. It has. It's really changed attitudes. I mean, not 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 enough, obviously, but I, it has brought some real progress, hasn't it? And Jimmy Savile, unfortunately, was dead by the time you know Utree got off the ground. But but it was the realization of who he really was that made it possible. But at least Rolf Harris was alive. However, his complete remorselessness is what people talk about a lot. 
isn't it? When he was in court, he um, he started singing to them. Yeah. He was trying to entertain them. I mean, uh, it wasn't when I was in there. I was flown to the UK by the prosecution. Um, I had a lot of to and fro's. I didn't even know until a few months before whether I was going to go. I was offered uh, lifetime anonymity in the beginning and then... Then things changed uh, and all of a sudden um, Consolidated Press over there wanted the bad character witnesses, which is what I was, to they wanted to know who we were and they wanted to talk to us and they wanted to drag us through the press because it was the biggest case in the world and it was everywhere. And I was asked to write an uh, email to the judge to say what I thought about that and if I was still willing to come forward, if my name was going to be, you know, thrown to the, if it was going to be thrown out there. And um, I was. And so I wrote this really succinct, powerful email and sent it off. One night, I'm in my house alone on big screen TV. I'm getting ready for getting ready for bed, and I hear these words, and I'm thinking, "Hang on, I said that." On the screen in front of me is a split screen. There's a male newsreader on one side. There's my words on the screen on the other side. There's this man reading the words in my email to the judge, and I was like, "Wow, how did Channel Ten or whatever it was get my email to the judge?" The first thing I thought, oh, shit, great. I'm so glad I wrote a really succinct email. <laughs> it was good enough to put on the news. Yay, it was so well written. The second thing was that, um, that they got it. And the third thing was I am public property. I have to be really careful in what I say and what I do now because this is a really big case. Uh, and then after that, um, so I still didn't know if I was going over there, but I did experience that. That was weird and very surreal. And I don't know to this day how the TV station got my email to the chat. That's disturbing actually, isn't it? But you you are like you are massive as part of this, a very visible person because so many women and people who were kids back then, I mean, they couldn't be open. I mean, the and I just noticed the last report into the inquiry into child sex abuse in the UK was released this week. It's gone on for so long. Like it's been incredible. So it started a whole heap of change, which is so good and so positive. Uh, and many people can start to heal from it, which is great, you know. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. When I was in the courtroom, um, I was given this lovely policeman who looked after me, uh, phone calls, emails in the months leading up to the trial because it was like eight eight months of this. My dad had literally died just before that, you know, and I wasn't really allowed to say anything to anybody. So it was emotionally intense for me at the time. So my cop that I had, who was really lovely, Tony, he said to me in the courtroom, and I got smuggled into the courtroom underneath and around because there was hundreds of press outside. So I was smuggled in by my driver. I had a lovely man who looked after us both, me and my girlfriend. Uh, and then I, I was smuggled into a back room so no one could see me. They took me inside the courtroom when it was empty at lunchtime, which was great. Uh, so you really got to see where you're going to stand because there's a big difference when it's empty to when it's packed. And uh, so I, when I did go in there, they smuggled me in again through, it was, uh, the irony did not escape me. It was like a cupboard on the side. <laughs> I did a courtroom. I was pissing myself laughing in there. So I with the cop. He said, just make sure that you don't look at him. He was giving me advice for me and what I was doing and what I was about to walk into. These police, they were child sexual assault police. They were very good at psychology, very good at holding your hand. Um, so I listened and I, t- I did what I was told. So he told me, look at the jury, look at the judge and look at the, the, the two lawyers. That's it. Don't look at him. So I did that. I didn't look at him once. At the very end, his lawyer called me a liar, which he apparently did to everybody. The weird thing was is I just talked about my knickers um, to the jury because Rolf would keep trying to push his hands up the leg of my shorts further and further each time. And back then we had, it was the beginning of the G-string, ladies. So it was like, um, it was two tri- triangle at the front, a triangle at the back and a string. So I, I felt as a woman, as he kept trying to shove his hand up my pants, which were baggy, that he was trying to feel my knickers, which he could never find. Because the string was, uh, you know, right at the top of my hip. So I'm talking about this to the jury and then she, you know, tells me, I'll put it to you, that you're lying. I'm really honest and you've kind of bared your soul and it's like there's a full packed room and the, the responsibility of telling your story in the most, uh, in, in your honest way is, um, it's, it's big, you know. And I snorted. I couldn't snort if you paid me, you know. And, I, and I'd since found out that the, there was two survivors in New Zealand. There was a mother and a daughter and uh, they were, uh, they went there live. They were online, like via Zoom or something. And when she called her a liar, she lost her chops um, and went off and swore and did all that sort of stuff. And so I controlled myself. However, when I got off the stand, the only person I looked at was him. I didn't look at anybody else. And I stared at him the entire time as I started to stalk out and down the corridor. My girlfriend was sitting on the left-hand side at the back and she had my bag and I reached and I grabbed the bag and I said, let's go. While I'm still looking at him, he didn't make eye contact with me once. He swiveled his chair around to face the opposite way. The press was sitting behind him having a field day at me staring down Rolf Harris. I needed to get out of there. Uh, it was like I was, there was anger and there was full-on emotion. It was like I was either going to scream or cry, you know. So I was like, I don't like being called a liar. So I was like, that was hurtful. And then it was like it was over. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, it just wells up, wells up, wells up. I've got to get out. 
So as I, because I'd come through the cupboard, right, the doors are, the, are really thick of the courtroom. So I've got quite a pace on as I'm storming out while I'm glaring at him, right? And I pushed the door thinking that it was heavy. No, it was really light. So I pushed down, there's two of them, right? I pushed out the door because I've got and I, bang, bang, and the entire courtroom went, jump, spike. <laughs> like, oh, my God, Susie Dent has left the building. I had such an impactful, um, you know, leaving. It was amazing. Um, And then then one of the cops comes running after me, so he drags me, you know, not drags me, directs me the right way so I don't, you know, get seen or anything. And they take me to this other room which had other cops in and someone made me a cup of tea because by that time I was sitting there going, fucking this and fucking that, I'm not a fucking liar. Fuck, fuck. Uh, Then then I'd like calm down and the guy who was the head of it all came up and came in there and stood in front of me. And he took my hand and he said, you did such a good job. We're so proud of you. And the tears were just rolling down my face. I'm like, oh, oh, really? Thank you so much. That's great. And then I knew that I'd done the job that I was supposed to do, you know, which was great and that I'd, you know, because you just don't know. I was listening to music. I, I kept myself in a vibe. It's really, you can let your nerves get the better of you. So I was playing the same song over and over and over and over and over in my head just to keep it. And I was playing Happy by Pharrell Williams, not because I was happy to be there, but because it's a really uplifting song. Kept all my vibe up. I didn't read over my, you know, it's like I'd been there. I knew what it was. I just kept in there. I just kept, I literally just played it over and over again and kept blank and high on serotonin and just like that. And then um, this woman came in who was the support person of the lady I'd seen on television. She was quite upset. She obviously hadn't been listening to Happy for two hours. And I got to pass a message through her to Tonya, which is what her name was, and I just said, can you please tell Tonya that I am here because of her. I'm here because I saw her on TV and I'm here to back her up. And this woman was so overcome by emotion, I got to give her a cuddle. I was please give this to her. I don't know how to contact her. um, We're not allowed to contact each other. Not not all the witnesses. Everybody was granted anonymity, but Tonya already didn't have it. Um, She disappeared off the face of social media. I, again, I don't need to find her because she doesn't need to go through any of that again, you know. But I got to have that moment with her support person. Like, so she was there with her 15-year-old girl who was fighting. When I was 12, I was molested when I was 12 and it changed my life. And my 12-year-old girl never said a thing to anybody. And I felt like when I was in the courtroom with these women that I was in there with uh, the inner 14-year-old, 15-year-old, 9-year-old, and it was like we were, there was this power that we'd come forward and for the first time in a long time we were being listened to and we were being heard and we weren't being wiped under the carpet, you know, and so many women came forward from all around the world with similar stories because he has a type and he does a certain type of thing, you know. It's so powerful that you all came together as well, you know, that you were this army. Yeah, we were and, and there was, you know, there was, I think there was 10 of us, including the women that came forward that were sexually molested by him. And you know what? No doubt there are so many more. Oh, and, that's and what I was thinking. Wherever they were then and wherever they are now, they know that they're part of the army too, even if they just didn't feel able to Oh yes, come forward, you know, um, yet they know that they're part of it. I mean, I think also what really turned public opinion around was knowing, finding out that he had repeatedly sexually assaulted his, uh, his daughter's best friend in their home. You know, this girl would, was coming over there for sleepovers and all that stuff, and she was 13. I think that was really impactful, that the, the evil of that is... And it was proved. Yeah. Because they found a letter 
that he'd written yeah. to her parents admitting guilt and that was the yeah. icing on the cake. He has had the most spectacular fall from grace than of anybody that we've ever seen. You know, his art is worthless. That's, so there was apparently statues and things around our country and in England that were in his honour that have been removed and or smashed, you know. Really, uh, the legacy that he was leaving is gone and he served time in jail and, and society was changed. It's like it had to happen. As a society, we let Ralph Harris and men like Bill Cosby into our homes via their TV shows. We let them entertain our children. We trusted them and we loved them as a society and, and pretty much as a world, like we're talking the UK and Australia. It's a massive amount of people. And they, everybody was in such disbelief. Well, again, Bill Cosby, though, was doing stand-up about date-raping women for decades. And nobody, about- nobody, it's like, wow. It's like we woke up, wasn't it? And- it was. It was. It was a complete wake-up. The world was completely in disbelief. And, of course, we were all lying. Uh, so I was really, I was given anonymity. I was really grateful for having the anonymity when the British... Uh, when the BBC chick found me, uh, it was only a couple of days after that and then every single day I was found by about 30 different press agencies from radio, television shows, news, you name it. They all called me. I had no intention of coming out and saying anything because it wasn't about me. It was about the women who were little girls. I didn't want it to be about me. I knew exactly what would happen. There they have photographed me. You know, I've been working in the media for a long time. I knew what they were going to do to me, you know. They have photographed of me back when I was um, with my hot legs, back when I was about 23. Those photos have been put up. Here's what she looked like at 23. Here's what she looks like at 50. Oh, you know, but is she doable now? And that's what that, and that's actually what happened. Uh, women came forward who weren't part of the case. There was a back then there was a girl group called the Nolan Sisters, which was three sisters. One of those sisters was molested by him. She came forward and was crucified by the press. It was like, what does she look now? She's a bit bit ugly. I wouldn't do her. There was a um, I don't know what they, they, they seem back then to like doing um, breakfast shows on beds. Oh, um, the big breakfast it was, um, I think that show, it was really way out there for its time. There you go. And she had Rolf Harris on the bed with her and apparently tried, he stuck his fingers up her knickers um, and she complained about it and she was trawled so bad. And she apparently she has um, a black husband and there was, there was racism and so much hate and disbelief. You're too fat to touch, you know, all this sort of stuff. So I knew what was going to happen. And even the police at the very end said, the, the PR got in touch with me and said, are you sure you don't want to, you know, come forward? And I said, yes, I'm sure because I do not want to be, I will be made the scapegoat in this and I do not want to become the poster girl for groping. No. The British press are particularly disgusting. I oh. think maybe it's changed a little bit since the phone hacking scandals and that, but they were so out there, like, all the time. It, it, there's, like, no holds barred, you know. I had the federal police um, from Brisbane. I had their mobile numbers because uh, they came to interview me and my husband just in case the press landed on my doorsteps. My kid was 12 at the time. I didn't want them to wake up, you know, and find all these press there. He knew what I was doing there. My son was very supportive. The police, um, when they did were working on the case, they sent police out to interview my friends of 30-odd years ago, which was amazing. So they really dotted their eyes across their T's. They, they were, did a really... Good job. About the fact that you had called them that day and, yeah. Yeah, the police were under immense amount of pressure with that operation because of the names involved and oh. they'd also had some issues with, you know, there was the, the guy who came forward that was a completely false allegations and that fucked 
a lot of it up with public perception. So oh, I totally. think there was so much pressure. Oh, yeah, I think there was too. There, and there was one witness that came forward and she'd said that she was molested by him at uh, like a kind of an it's a knockout kind of event up north somewhere. And he said, no, I, were, I wasn't there. And one of her friends had a video and the guy who was my driver, he said, oh, I've got to go drive up north. I've got to go. The video is really, really important. And he took off and we didn't see him for, you know, two days. Um, and he went up there and grabbed it and came back and became part of the case that showed Rolf Harris there. Wow. All the time that she said he was and it proved him to be a liar. Wow. So it was, it was really, it was quite amazing to be part of it. The fact that he just had no, well, seemingly had no awareness of the impact of his actions. He's like He never showed any contrition at all. No, and these guys had the benefit of a lifetime of just getting by, not being accountable, and then they appear all old and feeble and, oh, you know, yeah. and it, it, it plays. Weinstein. Oh. Remember he suddenly shows up with, with his Walker. walking uh-huh. brace. Oh, oh gross. God. But he, um, mm. I mean, they must know this is wrong or, or do they go, oh, well, that's nothing. It's just, you know, um, back then I don't know if men were, and I'm not trying to be an apologist, because it was just accepted that that could be done. But then there would be a lot of men who were like, no, that's fucked. You don't do that, even back then. There's a lot of behaviour back then um, that men got away with. I worked in a bank um, when I first came out of school. So I was a teenager. So at 18, I was sent home by the accountant. I wasn't allowed to wear the trousers that were part of the uniform that the other girls wore. Um, I was only allowed to wear the short dress so he could look at my legs. I was actually sent home one day because I wore the trousers. Oh, my God. So I went home because, I mean, you know, I went home and I put my short dress on and I came back to work. The assistant bank manager locked me in the safe once so we could cop a feel. Married, you know, cop a feel. Barely spoke to me afterwards, you know. But, you know, I managed to get away and get out and, and you know, I think he was fairly contritious. But it was like men would just do it. It's bad. I was a really young temp back in London, you know, not very confident really. Someone in a particular job said to me, oh, that guy loves it when you wear that skirt to work and you walk into the wherever so that he can, you know, see your legs. And it it actually made me feel really gross and really actually nervous. Nervous. Yeah, yeah, it's scary. It does. It does make you feel nervous. Um, and it's it's things that women were put through and they are now as well. It's like it's all focused on what you look like and you all of a sudden think, oh, okay, it's, I'm feeling a bit uncomfortable, you know. Back then at the same time I worked for a restaurant a really famous uh, steak restaurant that was really popular back in the day. The manager there used to, the dress that I, the uniform dress had slits up both legs to just above the knee. I would go in and he'd call me into his office and he would rip my dress to the waist. Oh, my God. No. The legs, mate. Yeah, the legs. I would just like, ah! Oh. And I'd get the stapler off his desk and I'd go, ka-choo, 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 and I'd staple both sides oh. of my dress and I'd go, you're done. Uh, and that would be the beginning of my shift. And then I'd come in the next day because I bugged if I was going to actually stitch it. And um, he'd say, have you, have you sewn your dress? And I'd go, no. So I'd rip the staples out and I'd get the staples and I'd do it again. So I learned, this was like 18, 19, I learned that um, what I looked like was a problem in the working environment and that my body was a problem and my legs were a problem. I was raised by a narcissist mother, so I already had kind of esteem issues because uh, there was a problem to her what I looked like as well, you know. So I learned back then um, what I did to stop it is somehow I managed to get a cockroach 
it was like a fake cockroach and both men liked me to make them coffee. So in the same week I made them the magic cup of coffee with the dirty big German cockroach in the bottom of it. The <laughs> bank manager screamed, which was great because I got the cockroach back. Uh, so the accountant screamed, so I got that back. And then um, the, the guy, uh, the manager of the, the steakhouse, he too let out some rip roars. never just never, ever ripped my dress again. Uh, the accountant, um, I then ordered dresses on the dress code. It didn't say that my dress had to be short and tight. So I ordered dresses, two sizes, too big for me, and I didn't hem them. Yeah. <laughs> Susie, I mean, look, you are an attractive lady and I don't want to be putting values on people's looks because that's not cool. But, I mean, you know, as you've described, you got attention because of your legs and that. But what was your self-esteem like and how's it gone over the years? Because often people are surprised if people who we – look at and think, wow, like, I wish I looked like them. And they're surprised to find that, hey, they're actually maybe not body confident. They're not confident in themselves. What, what's that been like for you? Getting that big dress when I was 19, those big bank uniforms was the beginning of me dressing down and covering my body up for the next 30 odd years of my life. And your Doc Martens and your big yeah, shorts. Uh, and looking like a tomboy, which is what I was, um, was a lot more comfortable. I felt really, actually felt uncomfortable wearing dresses. I felt really exposed. I didn't like wearing high heels because I can't run in high heels. And I've had moments where I've, you know, overseas where I had to run. Uh, me and a girlfriend in Greece, you know, when a car full of men pulled out, and it's like, yep, that was the last time I wore a mini dress and I was 20 and high heel shoes because I had to run away from a car load of men who were after us. I didn't like my body. There was parts of me, you know, when I was 12, I, um, it was my boobs uh, that were touched. So it wasn't like it was penetration. However, it changed my life so much. I remember watching um, the same thing happen to Ellen and she was 14 and I felt listening to her story, I felt such, it was like, oh, my God, my story does matter. Oh, yeah, I think it's, we talked about it too. Like sometimes you just wake up one day with boobs, don't you? And it feels like the whole world looks at you differently and you're still a kid. Like you're still in your mind, you're, yeah, you're a kid. Yeah, but, I was growing boobs at 10, yeah. you know. But so he, that changed me completely and around the same time my mother stopped hugging me because she was a narcissist. Um, and she actually said, push, get away from me, push, like, push me away, said, get those things away from me. So I had really oh. bad body image problems, hated my tits. When I did start having sex because my self-esteem was so low, I'd have sex with a T-shirt on. Back then, um, women would say to me, oh, my God, you bit your legs, and it would be just like stabbing me in the heart. And I would cover my legs up because other women felt intimidated by what I looked like. Um, I was raised by a narcissist mother who was incredibly jealous of me. So I had very low self-esteem. I didn't think I was all that at all. I was just thinking that and you couldn't exactly confide to other women, really. You can't say, oh, you know, my boss, I keep getting sexually harassed by my bosses because a lot of women would go, oh, God, she is so up herself. Susie's so up herself. She just reckons, oh, all her bosses fucking love her. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's hard, particularly as a young woman, to get any um, sisterhood. (laughs) Yeah, there is that. It's almost the sisterhood can often be quite as problematic as trying to, yeah, I don't know, sometimes we're our own worst enemies, aren't we? Yeah, Yeah, we are, which is why when we were talking about the beginning, this younger, when you were saying, Michelle, the younger woman reporting on the older ones, and that's what we want because it's us older ones that just cop the shit. We're used to it and we feel... Well, you know, it's okay. I'm just, it's happening, whatever, you know. But the young ones are like, no. Yeah, it's, I th- it's cool. It's been some situations, that, I think, where they've sort of been trying to say to these old, older women, no, you don't have to take that yes. shit. You are being bullied at work and I've seen you crying in the toilet. 
And if you're not going to demand better for yourself, then I'm going to demand it for I you. I love that. That's true yeah. sisterhood. I've seen that that's happen. true solidarity. Yeah. And that's what we want from our younger generation. We're trying to teach women to stand up and speak out, support themselves and support a sister, and to have a younger generation supporting an older generation. Just oh, I just love that. That's fantastic. They are pretty great. I feel like there's a lot to love about the younger generations in terms of their openness and acceptance of things. Like I've got two teenage daughters and they're just really chill about a lot of things that I'd be like, oh my God. But yeah, they really call me out. I say it all the time. Me and Michelle talk. It's like our kids call us out on shit. Yeah, yeah they, aren't they? They horrify. You know, it's good that they <laughs> yeah, call it's us hilarious. up. We yeah. do have to change some of the 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 words that we use and the yeah. things, you know. Yeah. And, and there was Australians in the 70s. I mean, you know, there was lots of things. Yeah. But obviously we needed this correction where we needed to change our culture because our culture was a place where men with bad intentions could hide. It's the behaviour. It was generational. It's a generational yeah. mindset towards yeah. women that we're trying to get rid of. But that's how it affects me. I wore big clothes and baggy clothes and dressed like a tomboy until I was 55. Yeah, right, and then changed. So that's five years ago. And what happened at 55? What? My husband, uh, who's now my ex-husband now, he was having some really bad emotional problems with depression and anxiety and anger management problems. He was yelling a lot. My self-esteem was really bad and I'd wake up crying and um, I put it out to the universe that I just wanted to do something different for a change, uh, like be in front of the camera rather than behind the camera so it wouldn't, it wouldn't upset my ex. I'd still be in a studio, you know. I used to sing in bands. I can sing and I can act, you know. And I thought, well, that'd be cool. So be careful what you wish for, though, because when you put a wish out there into the universe, the universe, God, life, whatever, has much bigger plans for you. So a couple of weeks later, I get this message from this woman. I was on Star Now, right? It's like an online app for actors and talent and crew that you can get free work. Sometimes paid work, but most of the time it's free work. So she found me on Star Now where I advertised as my, my hair and makeup. And she said, we think you'd, we'd, you'd be a really good fit for Mrs. Earth Australia, a beauty pageant. And I literally fell off my bed onto the floor because I thought, I don't, even, I don't even have any dresses, never mind high heels. Um, I don't wear frocks. And I got back to her. I said, oh, thanks, mate. Um, I said, you just made my month. I don't wear dresses and I'm, and I'm you know, I'm 55. She's like, I oh, know, there's older women doing it. And I stopped and I realised that life, God, the universe, was giving me a nudge, you know. And I watched this thing on Oprah a while ago and Oprah said that, you know, God sends you whispers and life sends you whispers and you've got to pay attention when you get these whispers. So I paid attention and I felt like I was having this sliding door moment. I could stay where I was and wake up the next day and for however long not being very good or I could take a risk. And I looked up the, I looked up the pageant and they raised shoes for this um, a charity called Souls for Souls and being a wardrobe stylist as well, I was, do- I was doing uh, secondhand clothes all the time, so it really appealed to me. And I had this business idea in my head of how I could do it, so I said yes, and it turned my life around. I, um, I had to wear dresses. I got so many sponsors. Buttercup sponsored me. I got frocks made for me. I had gowns made for me. I do talking. I started this... Um, whole uh, charitable thing, this marketing campaign with Bartercard and Souls for Souls so that people could drop off their new and new shoes at Bartercard and then we could ship them over and, and it was just amazing. Um, I like to say I kind of built my self-esteem one frock at a time. I would go to like rotary meetings and um, women's groups and breakfast things and talk to people about the charity 
and I'm wearing a crown and a sash, right? And so I wasn't me. I was her. I was Mrs. Earth. So each time I, I, I got my strength and my confidence to be able to talk in public because I was talking about somebody else. Uh, I was talking about a charity uh, and then I got more and more confident and um, I started to really believe that I could do this and I thought I can do this. So every day I would manifest winning Mrs. Earth and I would imagine being on stage down in Melbourne, Mrs. Earth Australia, Susie Dead, yay! Every day I remember I practised walking in high heel shoes. I Literally for two weeks I stood at the end of my bed trying to get my balance. Look, it changed my life. I, I went down there. I, I believed in myself um, so much so that I had a PR agent and we had interviews lined up ready for when I won. You've got to have that sort of self-belief. And I did win. I became the first Mrs Earth Australia in 2017. I represented Australia in Vegas with 36 other women from around the world. And some of the pageant countries over there, they were pretty serious about their pageantry. Half of the women um, that I was competing against, I could have given birth to. So that was awesome. I came third in the world, had so much press, um, the 30, the 55-year-old um, tomboy, the beauty queen story, and I inspired other women. And um, it was inspiring that other, I think, that other normal women like me could do something like this. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, recorded at a Hub Australia media studio. HubAustralia.com. Find the workspace that's right for you. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian true crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. 
If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.